собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRV podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. A search for Stalin biographies on WorldCat, the world's most premier library database, turns up hundreds of volumes written or translated to tens of languages. It's virtually impossible to account for all the Stalin biographies. Yet, despite them all, half of Stalin's life, his life before 1917, remains the most understudied and the most misunderstood. How did this impoverished, idealistic youth from the provinces of Tsarist Russia become a cunning and fearsome outlaw, and eventually one of the 20th century's most ruthless dictators? For me, there's no better person to deal with Stalin's younger days, his upbringing and life in Georgia, and his conversion to Bolshevism than Ron Suni. So here's Ron Suni on how Soso became Stalin. Ronald Grigor Suni is the William H. Sewell, Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan and Professor Emeritus of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. He's written many, many books on the history of the Soviet Union and the South Caucasus. His new book is Stalin, Passage to Revolution, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Ron Suni. Just to start, you know, when I, I know you've been working on the Stalin book for many years, and um, the first question I wanted to ask you is, is why you decided to write a biography of Stalin's life before the Bolshevik Revolution? For a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the first and main reason is I think it's really important and, and interesting so that was, you know, the main thing, the topic that had not been well studied. Everyone skims over that. And by the way, the life of Stalin before the revolution is just over half of his life. So it seemed to me important to figure out what was going on. How was he formed? How do you make a revolutionary? Why Bolshevism? All of those things. That was one thing. The second more personal reason was I had been working on Georgia and learned Georgian and uh, worked and tried to work in the archives during the Soviet period, though that was impossible, but worked in the libraries, read journals, and wrote a book on Georgia, The Making of the Georgian Nation, and wanted to continue working on a book on Georgian Menshevism or the Georgian Social Democrats. Uh, because of family problems, we lost a son in 1980. Uh, I, didn't, I went to Harvard to do that work at the, at the archive, but then never really did it. Uh, so those kinds of things developed. Um, and um, the, the, how would I make people interested in Georgia? Well, maybe the gimmick was, the MacGuffin, was to write about the most prominent Georgian, that is Stalin, and see if I couldn't get people interested. And I would say the third reason, which is maybe uh, um, 
the, the most important for me personally and politically is I am very interested in the history of social democracy, the labor movement, the revolutionary movements in Russia, in the Caucasus. I did a lot of work on that. My first book, The Baku Commune, was about that. And that was understudied. And secondly, uh, I didn't uh, like the way social democracy and the Russian labor movement, and, well, not the labor movement, but the, the Marxist party, the RSDRP, was treated in the literature, and particularly Lenin and the Bolsheviks. So I thought, let me go back and look at all of this stuff. Let me read all of that and see what was actually going on. And so there is a degree of revisionism uh, of that history in this book, um, and uh, a less of a demonization of Bolsheviks, at least up to 1917, and, and, uh, and, and less of a kind of hagiography of the Mensheviks, which also was in that historiography. So those are the reasons. Was there something you, you were dissatisfied the way Stalin's life itself had been told? Because, you know, one of the things you point out in the beginning is that it's it's not easy to write a, a biography of Stalin. You know, you have the weight of all of the bio biographies that have been written so far, which are many. And then there's, you know, we don't really have, you know, Stalin didn't leave any memoirs. He didn't leave any diaries. So to get into his head, uh, you know, you have to rely on other sources. And a lot of those sources themselves are politicized and et cetera. Yeah, I think basically there was a very standard a view of Stalin before the revolution. It came from his one-time comrade and then opponent, uh, uh, Iramashvili. It was a kind of psychobiography approach. And you find that up through the Tucker book, which is, you know, a wonderful book in its own way. But it, it was putting Stalin on the couch, so to speak, as you might from a kind of Freudian or uh, Karen Horney point of view and treating as social democracy and more so the revolutionary movement as a kind of pathology that you had to deal with, right? And I was more interested as coming from a more, you know, position much more sympathetic to Marxism. Uh, I came to this whole thing uh, wanting to take very seriously uh, what he had done and what he had written and what he was doing. Uh, and the most recent biography, these two volumes by Steve Katkin, which have their own, you know, wonderful aspects to it and so forth. Uh, one almost totally uh, neglect the earlier period. He's more interested in the police chief Dornova than and Stalipin than he is seems to be in Stalin. And <clears throat> uh, secondly, um, doesn't really dig deeply into his journalistic career, the nuances of of, of Marxism, etc. He's rather condescending almost dismissive of Marxism, which he doesn't take that seriously. Uh, and that you find that also in the Montefiore book, you know, the young Stalin. Again, uh, Stalin is a terrorist, Stalin is a gangster. Uh, there's almost nothing in that book about his work on the national question. So all of that needed to be reconstructed, uh, uh, resurrected in a way, and dealt with seriously. And the book came out you know, rather bigger than I had anticipated, you know, almost 900 pages. But that's what happens when you actually dig deep and, and write more for an uh, educated audience than for a popular audience. <clears throat> the book is basically aimed at upper level undergraduates, graduate students, scholars, and a college educated, interested public, as well as people on the left and activists. 
I mean, this this period of, I mean, as you said, the attention to Stalin's, you know, upbringing um, and time and, you know, the first half of his life uh, hasn't got a lot of attention, not in the detail in which you, uh, you, you give it. And the one thing that from the beginning that you emphasize, and, and I think, and I feel sometimes that some of the other biographies have, have left this part out to some extent, is Stalin's Georgianness which really carries throughout his entire life, even though he becomes more Russified. So talk about Stalin as a Georgian and the context in which he comes from. My basic approach has always been toward ethnicity, nationality, national identity, the nation, nationalism, that there's no fixed, continuous, essential quality of any particular ethnic group. That is, I'm fighting all of my career against that kind of essentialist, primordialist, fixed uh, view of, of national identity or nation. And so, you know, for me, the way I had written Georgian history, and this was something that Georgians really didn't like, though they're coming around more, some of them at least, younger scholars, is that Georgia is a work in progress, like Armenians being our work in progress, or Americans, you know. Uh, and that all national identities and all national essences, in quotes, are in fact conflicted, that nationality is a field of play in which different people are competing to sort of hold on to or fix what is the nation and what is the nature of Georgians, let's say. So Stalin is also this work in progress. And he begins, you know, as a young boy uh, with a kind of alcoholic father who he's alienated from, and a very devoted religious Georgian Orthodox mother who sends him to seminary and supports him and wants him to become a priest. So Stalin's first identity uh, is as a Georgian in the, the sense that it existed in Gori, in his mother's imagination, in his early life, uh, alienated from the Russian dominance, uh, you know, separate from the Armenian bourgeoisie or the employers who indeed some of whom employed his father. Um, and so he develops as this kind of Georgian in that sense, right? But it's a religious sense of identity and also an, an ethnic cultural sense of identity. For instance, one of his earliest struggles is to get the, the, the Tiflis, the, I'm sorry, the Gori school, the Gori religious school, to uh, allow them to study more about Georgia and to sing uh, in, uh, in Georgian, right? To sing Georgian folk songs and so forth. Um, and the very first battle he has uh, with the existing in political social environment is to kind of defend this Georgian effort against the sort of dominant, hegemonic, russifying culture of that period. Remember, we're in the period of Alexander III, you know, the most anti-national uh, kind of reactionary period of late Rus Russian czarist history. So there's that, that sense of Georgianism. He goes to the Tiflis Seminary. He's preparing to be a priest. He's a very talented young poet. He writes poems. They get published in various newspapers, um, Iveria and eventually Kvali, the social what will become a social democratic newspaper. Uh, and there it's kind of nationalist poems. They're again defending Georgia, you know, against this Russification, etc. He takes as his nickname uh, Koba after a Georgian as, uh, outlaw in the novel of uh, uh, Alexandra um, um, uh, um, Hazbeki. 
Uh, and so there's a kind of Georgian identity. Then as he's in the seminary, and the seminary is again a repressive environment where Georgians are discriminated against. It's a Georgian seminary, right? It's run by Russians, by reactionary Russian priests. Uh, he begins to move away from the church, move away from religion. And that's a kind of familiar um, evolution of many people who go into the revolutionary movement and into social democracy. And he identifies with Marxism. First, it's a Georgian Marxism. It's the Marxism of Noya Jordania, what eventually becomes Georgian Menshevism. He, uh, in fact, wants to marry in some way uh, the Georgian effort, the Georgian struggle with the, the greater Russian revolutionary struggle. He's criticized for that after his first exile. And as he develops on, uh, Stalin becomes less and less Georgian. He's basically rejected by Georgia after the the failure of, of the strike that he leads, which leads to bloodshed in Batumi in 1902. Uh, and eventually he leaves Georgia, which has now become highly Menshevik and dom dominated by the Mensheviks, and he's a Bolshevik, so he goes to Baku, and he's often running into the more cosmopolitan internationalist, you could say, multinational Russian social democratic movement, particularly the, the Bolsheviks. Yeah, this is uh, the, the context in which he gravitates from this, you know, romantic nationalism to becoming a, a Marxist and then eventually a Bolshevik. Um, you know, there are a lot of qualities to his story that you can see in many other people who became revolutionaries, right? They go to an educational institution. This is when they start, you know, participating in various reading circles and reading literature that they're not supposed to. And then they, they get con confronted by the school administration. I mean, the Russian student movement in the late 19th century is similar. Um, the other context, of course, is that when he moves from Gori to, to Tiflis, he's now in a, multi, a more multi-ethnic uh, milieu. Um, and then also, once he enters the revolutionary movement, it's also a very multi-ethnic milieu. So what, what, how, talk about that movement from, say, the seminarian to the revolution and the con how that context informed that passage. So much history, Sean, is written, as you know, from the, the point of view and the framing of nation and nationalism. And that has also been true of much of the history of the Russian Empire. Now, in the work that I've been doing for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, I can't remember anymore, uh, and particularly the book that I wrote with my wonderful colleague and friend, uh, uh, Valerie Kivelson, Russia's Empires, we've begun, and many others have done this, both in Ottoman history, I know, and Austro-Hungarian history, uh, and in, certainly in Russian history and Soviet history, we've taken a more imperial approach. Rather than siloing individual national histories, Armenians from Georgians, from Azerbaijanis, or whatever, we begin to see this in a larger, multinational, more complex uh, imperial context. And that informs this book. This book is about an empire in which there are fledgling nations or people trying to identify with, with this idea of the nation that's coming from Europe. But uh, it, it, the, the, so the, the gravitation from the, the Georgian culture of a small provincial town like Georgia to the revolutionary capital oil center, multinational center of Baku and then Petersburg, uh, those things, it seems to me, uh, need the emphasis or the lens uh, of, of this imperial setting. And the Bolshevik wing of, of social democracy, more than the Menshevik wing, 
uh, was much more into this. So you get people uh, that come out of ethnic, various ethnic milieu. Uh, they might have been, uh, you know, if they're Jewish, they might have gone into the Bund, or they might have gone into Menshevism. If they were Georgian, they might have gone into Menshevism. But the Bolsheviks were the most, I would say, internationalist, most cosmopolitan group. Uh, and people who came out of whatever locality would go to social democracy. Let's say someone like Trotsky, he didn't become a Bolshevik until uh, 1917, but he was one of those people who came out uh, of a Jewish milieu and moved immediately into this cosmopolitan internationalist movement. Many others, say Polish, Lithuanian, Latvian uh, social democrats, moved away from a more national to a more internationalist or multinationalist orientation. And Bolshevism was a good home for them. So as Stalin moves away from Georgia uh, into a identification closer, not with ethnic Russian, but with a multinational eth uh, uh, Russian revolutionary movement, he leaves much of this Georgianness behind. Oh, it stays in his private life. He'll, he'll even have a, a you know Georgian cook uh, when he's uh, the autocrat of Russia in the 1930s. But in his political life and in his, uh, uh, his affiliations with the revolutionary movement and Marxism, he's far more a, ma a member of this multinational, uh, all-Russian movement rather than with Georgia. Yeah, I'd like to have you comment more about this aspect of, of the Bolshevik movement, because this is something that that's, you know, struck me, but I don't think gets enough attention. And that is, you know, even around Stalin's own personal circle, it's Georgians, Armenians, Russians. When you look at the top, some of the later top leadership of the Soviet state, it's a multi-ethnic leadership. Um, how does this give the, the Bolshevik movement like make it different than say, you know, the like Mensheviks or other social democratic movements, this, this internationalism. There is more an identity. Um, and this is true of social democracy in general, though there are these, uh, these different areas where it does have more of a national flavor and Georgia would be one of them. But in general, in Baku, in Petersburg, Moscow, obviously, in many parts of the of the empire, uh, uh, Bolshevism and social democracy is about this all union struggle. Imagine the first government that is formed by Lenin. It has Poles, Jews, Georgian, uh, all kinds of different peoples in it. So nationality was nationality was kind of imposed on on these Marxist revolutionaries. They had to take account of it. They came to it rather late. Oh, it's there early. But it's only around, you know, after the, the 1905 revolution, when national movements become more visible and, and generalized, that, that the party itself takes up this issue. And that's when Lenin, in fact, uh, hired Stalin, uh, a, a member of a, of a non-Russian nationality, to write this book uh, on Marxism and the national question. So I would say the, the, the party is a party of an empire not of Russia or any particular nationality. And, and how, does, how does this cosmopolitan life that he, he begins to live uh, shape, his un, shape Stalin's understanding of nationality? He, uh, Stalin, basically, by 1913, when he writes this, this uh, uh, brochure, this book, uh, Marxism and the National Problem, has already imbibed 
through some conflict and some, through some differences and through some evolution, the basic uh, Leninist outlook. And it's a kind of, in some ways, Stalin's view is a little bit crude. Uh, he, first of all, he starts with a very firm definition of, of what the nation is. And it's, you know, it's got, it's got certain characteristics. So, and then he's trying to fit the theory into that. That, of course, is not that important at the time when he writes, 1913. But of course, once he becomes autocrat of Russia, I mean, the dominant uh, figure in the party and in the state, that will, will re be reflected. Um, and early on, the, the, he and Lenin, and it's Lenin who recruits him to do this work, are fighting against certain tendencies in the, so, in the European and Russian social democratic movement against what's called Austro-Marxism, against what's called extraterritorial cultural national autonomy, uh, and even against national territorial autonomy. Lenin and Stalin in the brochure prefer, yes, there'll be regions, and some may be more national than others, but whatever we build is going to have regional uh, uh, importance, not national cultural importance. And before 1918, the party, at least the Bolsheviks, are strongly against any kind of federation. So they're going to have to give all of this up once they take power and once you know, the civil war begins and nationalisms begin to develop in a fierce way uh, in those years. But before that, no federation, uh, no uh, national uh, uh, cultural autonomy, but and this is a principle that, that European socialism developed and Lenin adopted very, very energetically, there would be national self-determination. So you could, you, could, you could, in fact, opt for independence. Uh, you could have some degree of cultural uh, nationalism. But if you decided that you wanted to stay within the Russian state, the new post-revolutionary Russian state, uh, you couldn't demand uh, any particular federal system or anything like that. That would all change after the, after the October Revolution. So it's a complicated, they're, they're finding their way. And there are a lot of disputes within the movement. Remember, on the left, there's people like Rosa Luxemburg and Bukharin and uh, Piatakov who'd want no concession to nationality. And Lenin's position is respect nationalism. It's there. We're not for it. We don't want to make too many concessions to it. But it's a reality. Lenin was always so pragmatic. And Stalin follows that. I, I want you to talk a bit about the, the, the relationship between Stalin and Lenin. What, what attracted Stalin to Lenin and vice versa? What did Lenin see in him? That's a very good question. So from Stalin's point of view, and you see this in letters and so forth, Lenin is clear, militant, uh, uncompromising, um, a principle, you could say, in a positive way. He makes a, a point. He sticks by it. Now, there is also, as I say, a pragmatism, and there can be a flexibility. What, and, 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 and that appealed to, to Stalin. And so Stalin, very, from very early on, uh, I think it's about 1904, as I remember, talks about Lenin as a mountain eagle. He actually uses this phrase several times, this dominant figure. And, and, and Lenin represents the most uh, militant, the most sort of revolutionary aspect of the Marxist movement in Russia. So that's appealing to Stalin, who's young, he's a firebrand, 
He's a stormy petrel, if you want to say. He's, you know, someone who wants to be active. He's, he's driven to action, sometimes to disaster, as in Batumi in 1902, but he wants, wants to do stuff. Um, uh, Lenin is attracted to Stalin as a pra practical worker, as a pra praktique rather than a teoretique. That is, uh, Lenin, there are enough theorists in the party, uh, but he doesn't need more theorists. But he likes the fact that, that Stalin is tough, that Stalin is, is dedicated to hard work, that he's, uh, you know, someone who's who ready to commit his life to this revolutionary movement. Now, there are problems uh, with this. That is, people in the underground, and Stalin was really an underground man, a committeechik, uh, that is a member of committees, uh, they tended to be sometimes rigid, uh, un, uh, inflexible, uh, and there's a critique of that as well, uh, though that doesn't seem to have affected the respect and even affection that Lenin seemed to have for Stalin right up through the revolutionary year, so in my book. Now, there is one conflict between Lenin and Stalin. There are two, actually. There's one over the agricultural question, the agrarian question, uh, and Stalin's position is a little more radical than Lenin's. Uh, there's one about compromising, actually now I'm going to make three, uh, with some of the people in the party. Stalin is more committed to unity and not throwing people out of the party, this is interesting, than Lenin is. I mean, Stalin will become more Leninist later in the 20s and 30s, but, but, uh, but in the, in the pre-revolutionary period, he's always emphasizing unity, and he's fearful of all these esoteric theoretical discussions over materialism and, and imperial criticism that Lenin is absolutely dedicated to. Lenin is, believes that philosophy, uh, ontology, epistemology uh, uh, was important for the solidity and the progress of the revolutionary movement. Uh, Stalin could give, couldn't give a damn about that, or very little, not concerned. Talk about you've you've mentioned Batumi and his 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 role in the revolutionary movement and his militancy. What are some key moments to his revolutionary career that that shaped his outlook? You know, in that book, uh, if there's an overall arch to the arc to the book, and and I can understand why in a 850 page book you might not see the arc. It's about, and I say this in the conclusion, it's about the erosion of empathy. The erosion of empathy. Now, empathy is a powerful emotion. I'm very interested in emotions in history. Uh, it's an emotion that without an empathy, you can't have society. You can't have people feeling the pain of others and, and, and legislating and, and creating institutions that, that deal with those who are more vulnerable, right? And we in this country, in America, we've seen the evolution, or not the evolution, but the, the movement from an unempathetic, sociopathic leader, namely Donald Trump, to someone who is maybe over-empathetic and, and sort of beautiful, really a good human being, though he's also a pragmatic politician, Joseph Biden. And you can see the dangers of having a lack of empathy in the policies. People die, people are hurt, people are wounded, people are thrown out of countries, all of those things. And Stalin, whatever he was as a kid, um, and he was this romantic poet, he was a beautiful singer, uh, and so forth, shy in some ways, uh, rough in some ways. Uh, what you see over time as this, this story evolves uh, is the erosion of empathy. 
And Batumi is one event where he leads this worker strike, he encourages them to go out and, and they're shot down and people die because of the Cossacks and the resistance of this brutal uh, Tsar state. The Tsar state is more brutal, more violent on the peripheries of empire. It's again, the framing of empire than it is in the center. And Georgia uh, and the Baku is a periphery, as is the Baltic countries in Poland, where they used more violence, like these Karatyny Expeditia, these punitive expeditions where they would send people in and, and, and crush the, the, the resistors. So uh, he's experiencing violence, whatever violence he experienced in his early life on the streets of Gori, he he experiences it in, in 1902. And then in 1905 to 1907, when he's back in Tiflis, and he leads a small group called Jigupi, which means group in Georgian, of terrorists, of basically people who go out and assassinate people. Now, that's not only Bolsheviks who are doing that, Mensheviks are also doing this as the Caucasus. It's a different kind of environment from Central Russia, where Marxists were generally not individual terrorists, but they were certainly uh, in, in the Caucasus on both wings of the party. So 1905-1907 is an absolutely crucial moment in this process of the, of the erosion of empathy. And you can see afterwards that Stalin is already different from rougher, cooler, uh, more cynical, more Machiavellian than he might have been uh, in the years before 1905. And then he goes into a long period after 1907 of being an underground man, of being an outlaw, of rushing from the police, of frequently being arrested and moving into exile. And then from 1913 to 1917, in the far, far eastern reaches of, of Siberia in, in uh, exile. So a brutalization there of his experience. I, I think, that, you know, this is really important to point out that, you know, the Russian revolutionary movement is incredibly violent. Um, you know, between that, that 1905 to 1907 period in particular it is wave upon wave of terrorism and violence in the streets. Uh, you know, for the most part, the main uh, revolutionary component of the movement uses terrorism and violence. And do you, do, do you think that this, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between, you know, like you described, he becomes a Bolshevik. There's a culture within Bolshevism. And then there's a culture in the wider revolutionary movement, both in terms of how one carries themselves, how one identifies themselves, but also in what one does in the sense that they're participating in a very violent atmosphere. Um, how do you put all these these together in, in how Stalin reacts and the way he does things between being a, is this a quality of this hardedness, like we, we know this later after revolution, to Bolsheviks need to be hard. Is this something that's yes, formed? They use that word. <laughs> yeah. Is this something that's formed in this context? And so Stalin, in, in many respects, isn't an outlier than other revolutionaries. Stalin is a Marxist. He joins a Marxist movement. And Marxism, for better or for worse, is a bizarre combination, an amalgam of humanism and brutality or violence. Marxism wants to liberate the world, wants to make people as free as possible. This is what you find in Marx himself and Lenin's own prose as well. That is, there's a dream of a utopian, harmonious, 
emancipated mankind, right, that you find in many works. So there's a deep humanism that carries through the Soviet period. There is a Soviet humanism, which many people have not written about. Uh, at the same time, it's a theory of war. It's a theory of class war. And it's very, very um, hard-nosed and practical about if you're going to liberate the working people, then the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy and the people of property and privilege and so forth are not going to give it up easily. As we know, they will resist. They'll use the power of the state, the police, the army, the prisons, executioner and so forth against the revolutionary movement. So you're not going to dream your way into this, especially in a place like Russia. You might have evolutionary socialism in Germany or, or, or in Western Europe after World War II, but you're not going to have it in Tsarist Russia, which is a police state based on violence and coercion, and increasingly on coercion. That is, whatever cultural, political hegemony Tsarism might have had earlier, where it worked and people imbibed the rules of the game and the naturalness and divine sanctions of Tsarism, as you move into the, the administrations and reigns of Alexander III and Nicholas II, it's coercion uh, which is developing and not the kind of uh, old aura of the Tsar, the charisma of the Tsar. That is eroding, particularly after 1905. So it seems to me violence and, and humanism are cohabiting coexisting within the Marxist movement. And some people move in one way and accept all the humanism without the violence. And others, and someone like Lenin and Stalin, uh, understand that, that there's a brutality here. Lenin says at one point, you can't give up capital punishment. What are you going to do? Uh, how are you going to use uh, weapons if, if you don't? He praises terror. He says, I'm a Jacobin. And Stalin would fall right into that. So, you know, when Stalin becomes absolute ruler, of the country. Like Lenin, now Lenin was not as cruel as Stalin would become. He used terror uh, instrumentally and for periods of warfare, not in peacetime. There's a difference between the Civil War period and the Nep period. But Stalin uses terror and state terror during peacetime, when he's after he's defeated all his enemies. He carries out the, the, the bloody murder of the, of, the, of the Bolshevik party, of the, what's left of of, of the Communist Party and of masses of people, right? Uh, so there's something else. There's something else going here. But, and I'll end with this. There is, I mean, this part of the question. Uh, there is in Lenin, and it's certainly in Bolshevism. Bolsheviks like Stalin, maybe not in Kamenev or Zinoviev or whomever. Uh, maybe not in Bukharin, but I bet that it's in all of them. There's a sense that that okay. Klausowicz said politics, uh, war is an extension of politics. But for Bolsheviks, politics is an extension of war. These are not people who think politics is, as in a democracy, about negotiation, compromise, deliberation, give and take. Uh, if you're defeated, you know, step aside and your, your opponents will come to power, but they'll recognize that you'll come. No. For Lenin, from the beginning, politics is war. You defeat your enemy. You destroy your enemy. You take power, and you don't give up power. He says this. I mean, he's no liberal, right? He's a, a Marxist, an extreme Marxist revolutionary. Uh, and, 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 and what happens when that idea of politics of war already continues uh, into the post-Soviet, post-revolutionary period, right into the 30s? and becomes so bloody brutal that it destroys 
uh, even the essence of, of what Marxism and the revolution, uh, which was after all a bottom-up at, attempt to emancipate working people, uh, what happens to that? It, it's, it's destroyed. You know, there's been a lot of, of debate about Stalin's role in 1917. You know, here's this guy. He's a he's a practical worker, right? He does he does the jobs a lot of people don't want to do, particularly those more intellectual types. He doesn't, you know, his exile is not in Switzerland. You know, he's he, when he's he's on the periphery of of the empire, whether it's in the Caucasus or in Siberia, for a lot of part of his life, his revolutionary career. Uh, what what is what does he do in 1917 when he returns uh, to to when he comes to Petrograd? Well, those who read the book and you've obviously read the book, you know that I go against the view um, that Stalin was the man who mi missed the revolution, or Stalin was a gray blur, or whatever. Now he was not prominent in the public sphere. That's true. He was no Trotsky or even Lenin in that in that regard. He was no great orator. Neither was Lenin, by the way. Trotsky was, obviously, Zinoviev was. Uh, but he was extremely important within the party. So he's, he's, there's a, a disjuncture between his public uh, repre repre reputation and visibility and how effective he is within the party, right? Uh, and um, what you find is that he's, ex he's so extraordinarily uh, powerful enough that when Lenin and Zinoviev are in exile in, or they're, they're, they're forced to flee to Finland after the July days of 1917. And uh, um, uh, Trotsky is in prison. Uh, I think Kamenev is also in prison. Uh, Stalin became the leading figure of the party and he leads the six party uh, Congress, Congress. So that's important. And then he's a member of the Central Committee. That's very important, right, from 1912 on. He's a member of, uh, he's at the meetings that planned the October Revolution. He's actually closer to Trotsky there probably than he is to, to Lenin, ironically. And then when the, 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 the new government, the first Soviet government is formed, he's given the post of commissar, a commissar of, of nationalities. And he's off and running and he's close to the, the very top leadership. But it's an extraordinary career. He makes a career within the party. Stalin would have been uh, a good mafia boss. And Stalin would have been a very good CEO of a major corporation. I remember he actually comments in an in a interview that um, if he would have immigrated or to America or grown up in America, he would have been a businessman. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> um, you know, th there, there are many Stalins, right? I mean, there are many Stalins as there are biographies of Stalin. There's many Stalins in your biography of Stalin. Um, and, and they can be roughly, in your book, roughly brokered down into various periods of, of you know, what he calls himself, right? So Soso, and then Koba, and then Stalin. What are some of the, the continuities between all three of these and some of the, the, the breaks you see? And I mean, you've spoken about some of the breaks already, the, the role of violence in, in turning him into a, a different type of person. But what kind of continuities and breaks do you see between these three identities? First of all, the idea of many Stalins, I borrowed from Moshe Levine, who I consider in many ways my intellectual mentor in this field. Uh, he talked about that and talked about how uh, important politicians are actors, how they're, that, that politics is a kind of theater, and Stalin was good at that, right? That's one thing. Secondly, I am reminded by your question, Sean, of a discussion I had many decades ago. I gave uh, an early version of what I was going to do in this book 
to a committee uh, to a, um, a, a circle or a, a speech I gave at Berkeley. And the wonderful uh, Reggie Zelnick asked exactly that question. He said, so you're doing a kind of postmodern biography. You're talking about not not an organic uh, continuation from the child to the man. You're talking about different environments uh, in, in which there are different um, uh, uh, ways of adjusting to those environments and so forth. But what are the continuities, right? What, what, it's the same guy. It's the same figure, right? Uh, and so there has to be continuities as well as these kinds of breaks that take place as he evolves through what I call in the book different cultures, right? The culture of, of the, the small Georgian town, the culture of Georgian orthodoxy, the, the seminary, the uh, learning about the Marxist movement, moving into uh, the revolutionary movement, moving into the underground, uh, revolution itself, you know, and, and then it, it eventually into, into power. But the, 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 I guess I, I'd have to fall back on the continuity, the overall arc is not only his commitment to Marxism, right, which once he gets into, he doesn't give up, right? He was a very orthodox, orthodox uh, Georgian orthodox. Uh, now he's a very orthodox Marxist as he understands Marxism and the Marxism as interpreted by Lenin. So he, that's, that's very important to him. And he reads it in a certain way as politics, as warfare, uh, as a kind of pragmatism. Uh, but you can see also from his childhood certain things that do follow through. He'll, for instance, he'll continually through his life, right up into uh, full power in the 30s and 40s, he'll, he'll surround himself with a small group of loyalists, of friends, you could call them, comrades, but ones that he'll use instrumentally. Uh, rather than, you know, learn, share, discuss with. In that way, he's different from Lenin. Lenin is far more flexible, ultimately, and can negotiate. Lenin can work with Trotsky, for instance. He had bitter fights with Trotsky before 1917. As soon as Trotsky comes back to, to Russia in, in, the summer, in the spring and summer of 1917, Lenin, just like that, and says, this guy is really good. We're going to use him. Put him in the party, make him foreign foreign commissar, commissar of foreign affairs. I mean, he'll use him, remaining suspicious of him because Trotsky is a real loose cannon and goes his own way when he can. Stalin, from the first time he met him in Vienna, could not abide Stalin, uh, Trotsky. And Stalin could not abide uh, Trotsky and, and never could adjust to that. And that conflict, of course, is fatal during the Civil War, during NEP, the defeat of Trotsky, and eventually Stalin murders him or has him murdered. So, you know, there are, there are continuities there. Um, but it's, it's not that the boy in Tiflis or in Gori, the romantic poet, the, the bulbuli, the, the nightingale voice, uh, is the same person as he is the tyrant of the 1930s. Right. You know, one of the, the challenge, going back to the challenges of writing a biography about a figure like Stalin is it's really difficult, if not possibly impossible to avoid looking at the biography by the end, particularly in Stalin's case, of course, 1937. And a lot of, a lot of biographies have this vantage point, either consciously or unconsciously. How, how did you deal with this problem? You know, many reviewers uh, note that, that is that they don't understand, you know, 
why this Stalin is the same Stalin of the 1930s. Now, I've tried to sort of argue about this erosion of empathy, but he's going to find himself in a new context. There's the context of the revolution of 1917. And then there's the brutality in which the first Soviet governments are going to find themselves, right? What happens? They take power. There's a world war on. It's going to go on for another year, right? And there's going to be foreign interventions. First, the Germans and the Ottoman Turks, but later the allies, even boys from Michigan are going to be there. And secondly, there's going to be a civil war that's going to develop almost immediately in the days after they take power. Now, Lenin and Stalin are somewhat guilty also of provoking that civil war by the way power is taken in October, but more importantly, by the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly, the first really democratic elected body uh, in, in, in Russian history. Um, so civil war is in the air. Lenin uh, uh, is not afraid of civil war. He's not one of those like Martov who is afraid of civil war. He almost welcomes it. Civil war within Russia will turn into an international civil war of class against class instead of nation against nation. So, you know, there, there are many things there that are going to uh, brutalize further Bolshevism and Leninism. And it's not accidental that that, that experience. I mean, if I lived long enough, if I lived long enough, uh, I would write a second volume and I'd probably want to limit it to the Civil War period or the period up to 1924 and the death of Lenin, which I think is formative. The Soviet state is born in warfare. The Bolshevik achievement, Lenin's great achievement, was that he built a state in the middle of this war, international and civil war. Now, he did it in an authoritarian fashion. He didn't do it in a democratic fashion. But it was like building a ship from scratch why, in a turbulent storm at sea. So it's a great achievement, but it ultimately le- ended up in a certain kind of state that they couldn't even have anticipated before the, the revolution. And it's the opposite of what happened to Gorbachev. That is, Gorbachev tried to build a new state through democratic means, and he lost his state, he lost his power, the Soviet Union collapsed and broke up into 15 republics. Yeah, this is the Civil War period. And, you know, I'm reminded of of that collection of, of essays uh, you edited many, many years ago on the Civil War. It's one of the few uh, trying to deal with the Civil War period due, through a kind of social political history. And it's such a crucial period because, and at least for me, the way I understand it is that it showed the Bolsheviks that violence is a form of governance. And 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 in dealing with the you know a, a a country that was broken apart, but also went through you know basically the cycles of violence from 1905 to 1922, 23. It depends on where you are, right? If you're in the periphery, violence continues into the middle of the 20s. But violence becomes one of the 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 few mechanisms that they're able to exercise to govern that space. And it gets incorporated into the way not only that they see the world from, say, the revolutionary period, revolutionary movement, but also the way they try to govern it. Right. The danger of that point of view, which I agree with, by the way, but there is a danger, that is their structural and environmental explanations. That's the was the work of social history. That's what we tried to do in that volume long ago, right? And uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick and Bill Rosenberg and others, you know, wrote that history very well. The, the problem with that is that it may leave out agency, it, it leaves out ideology. 
there were actors, there were important actors, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, etc., who had ultimately made decisions within that structure to go this way rather than that way. Uh, uh, yesterday in my class, uh, we were talking about the Constituent Assembly. One of my students asked, well, what if Lenin hadn't overthrown the Constituent Assembly? What would have happened? Uh, we can't predict that, but it certainly would have evolved in a different way under the SRs and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's those kinds of stories. Maybe they would have failed and maybe you'd have a right wing white restoration or something, but, but you didn't get that. You got what, what you got un, under Lenin. But the choices that Lenin made, and I would put real emphasis on March 1921, when you uh, crush the Kronstadt Rebellion and you uh, decide there'll be no factions within the party, uh, that you're already moving in a, in a more authoritarian direction. And it's already true during this, the earlier civil war uh, from 1918 on. So choices, I take what I call a radical middle position, standing between structures and environment and agency and personalities and contingencies and try to marry the two together. That's hard to do, but it seems what historians should be doing. What did you learn about Stalin's life that surprised you, that you didn't know before? In this book, yeah, I think there are a couple of things. That he was more important than people gave him credit for. That he's smarter than people gave him credit for. Now, there's already a literature that's begun to develop. Bob Service has talked about this, and, and Steve Kotkin has talked about this, that already emphasized that he's no dodo. That is because we were so much of our historiography earlier had been influenced by Trotsky, who was totally dismissive of Stalin intellectually, etc. Uh, and I'm not saying he was a great uh, theorist or that he was an imaginative intellectual, but he had a pragmatic uh, sense, as a good CEO would have, or a good um, a, a, a good mafia boss, I guess, you know, of what was possible and what wasn't. And there's this wonderful uh, uh, anecdote, which is may or may not, it's not, it's not true, it's apocryphal, but it was circulated in the Soviet Union at one point. Lenin was asking his comrades, you know, I need someone uh, to uh, go out into this thing and to talk to the workers and then to, to organize this thing and do that and so forth. And Trotsky said, oh, I'd love to do that. But, you know, I have these articles to publish and I'm writing this book on literature and revolution. And Stalin says, I'll do it. So there is this, <laughs> there is this pragmatism that is combined with this uh, this side of 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 being smarter than you would have thought he was. But it's a practical uh, intelligence that he had. Some people have artistic intelligences. Some have, you know, abstract theoretical intelligences. He understood in a way. Marxism is, after all, the sociology of the Bolsheviks. It's the way. They see the world. It's the frame through which they understood social movements. And remember, you know uh, this history well enough. They always would have a speaker who would talk about tekushi moment, you know, the coming moment, the, the moment, the present. How do we understand? And they'd use Marxism in a very fruitful way to try to understand what was going on, you know, and what might happen. And that you needed that. So sometimes they were wrong. They overestimated uh, the class divisions within the peasantry, let's say, from a Marxist point of view. Uh, but generally, they got a lot of things right. And certainly during the revolutionary period uh, and the Civil War, they made the right choices. A lot of biographies about Stalin, again, going back to this, trying to diagnose him, trying to understand, you know, the Stalin of the late 30s through, you know, the young Stalin or his revolutionary activity. Um, 
how do you how do you understand Stalin? Like how would you how do you explain him to your students or to others? Someone asked this question yesterday. You know, I'm sorry to go back to my class, but the, the students in their innocence and their 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 interest will sometimes ask these penetrating questions. And the one student, so we had finished the class. Yesterday's lecture ended somewhere in the summer of 1918, the first year, right? And the student asked, you know, I hope you won't think this is a stupid question. I always say there's no such thing as a stupid question. He said, was Lenin good for Russia? And I thought, oh boy, oh boy, now what? Now what do I say? How do I explain, you know? And I said, you know, I'm not sure anyone else could have done much better in that situation. Now he made choices that led toward a one party state and made Stalin also possible. Stalin didn't come out of Buddhism. Stalin came out of Leninism, right? Uh, but but history is is hard on people. History is tragic in a way. There weren't a lot of choices. You couldn't have um, saved the country probably at that moment through a democratic means. Uh, in that situation, it was going to be either a dictatorship of the right or a dictatorship of the left. And ultimately, Lenin made that choice. So Stalin, uh, uh, you know, benefited for all those things. But as you move toward the 1930s and Stalin becomes all powerful, right? So after the uh, you know, first years of the 1930s, then Stalin is himself a social force. Stalin can act arbitrarily, and he made choices that were destructive, not only of Russia, not only of the intelligentsia, not only of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people, but also of Marxism and socialism itself. Um, and those, the, the terror he launched was unnecessary. You could call it excessive or surplus violence, uh, but it was largely, as Moshe Lemon pointed out and others have mentioned, to secure his own uh, autocrat, or autocratic power to destroy bureaucrats, uh, and also probably fueled by his own deep suspiciousness that bordered on paranoia. Well, Ron, thank you very much. Um, it, is there uh, anything you'd like to say that you didn't get a chance to say or clarify? I just hope people will read the book and they'll 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 understand that I. As someone very sympathetic to Marxism, I don't know if I'm a Marxist or not. I mean, I think it's something you become over time and you never really achieve. But I'm, I can't imagine doing history without Marx. And, uh, you know, same ways you can't quite do it without Freud or Weber or some, you know, Durkheim and some others, these, these great people. Um, but that I think I would like people to think of Marxism uh, and the revolutionary movement in Russia and the choices that people made in 1917 in a more complex way so that they understand that Marxism is not only what eventually will be identified with Stalinism, and which still pervades in West, many Western imaginations, imagine the debate in this country about what socialism is, you know, the silly debate, uh, and take it more seriously and understand it in its complexity, because it's, a, it's the most fundamental critique of bourgeois liberalism, of bourgeois democracy, and of capitalism. And that still has a relevance. And young people in this country are appreciating that relevance. They may not become Marxists, but they're seriously questioning the limits of capitalist democracy and questioning, what do we do now? How do we, how do we improve on this? Because we've come into so many social and political impasses. That was Ron Suni. 
Ronald Gregor Suni is the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan and Professor Emeritus of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. He's written many, many books on the history of the Soviet Union and the South Caucasus. His new book is Stalin, Passage to Revolution, published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the Table of Ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Вы большой ученый, Безоказаниях познавший толк, А я простой советский заключенный, И мой товарищ серебрянский волк, За что сижу по совести не знаю. Но прокуроры, видимо, правы. И вот сижу я в Таруханском крае, Где при царе бывали в ссылке вы. И вот сижу я в Таруханском крае, Где конвоиры грубые и глупы. Я это все, конечно, понимаю, Как обострение классовой борьбы. Я вижу вас, как вы в партийной кепке, И в кителе спешите на парадах. Мы рубим лес и сталинские щепки, как прежде во все стороны летят То дождь, то снег, то мушкара над нами А мы в тайге с утра и до утра Вы тут из искры раздували пламя Спасибо вам, я греюсь у костра Вчера мы хоронили двух марксистов. Мы их не накрывали кумачом. Один из них был левым уклонистом. Второй, как оказался, ни при чем. Живите тысячу лет, товарищ Сталин. И как бы трудно не было бы мне, Я знаю, будет больше чагуна и стали На душу населения в стране.